celebrating Palm Sunday along with the rest of most of Christianity, except for the uh, Eastern Orthodox branches of Christianity. That is uh, a week or so off from what we are, uh, or maybe we're off from them, I don't know. But um, we begin, though, for us, what's been historically called Passion Week or Holy Week. Uh, and so, you know, there are different events laid out throughout the week. If, uh, depending on your church tradition, for us, we typically just uh, celebrate Good Friday and then Easter Sunday, but there is Maundy Thursday, there's Holy Saturday. Uh, and so, uh, we begin today with the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and then we end next Sunday when we celebrate uh, Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And so, um, as I thought about this uh, being Palm Sunday and also the little mini-series we've been in where we're just kind of dealing with some of the objections or questions that people have about Christianity, uh, this week fell on the question of uh, evil and suffering. Why is there evil and suffering in the world? And what's interesting about that is that the Christian response to why is there evil and suffering is to point us to the cross and say uh, the response of God and the response of Christianity to evil and suffering is to enter into it with us. Uh, and so uh, this verse I'm always reminded of on Palm Sunday uh, in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, where Jesus said, or where Luke says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. And so that phrase, set his face, is not in our normal nomenclature. We don't talk, I don't, I don't set my face to go to Walmart, right? It's not how we talk. Uh, so what does it mean? Uh, it, it's, it's much more than just a decision to go to a place. It is a calculated determination towards a goal. So you might say, if you wanted to use this phrase, something like, I am going to set my face towards being healthier this year. And then you would make all kinds of choices and movements towards that, towards that reality. And that's what uh, we're looking at when we think about Palm Sunday, that Jesus is deliberately stepping into uh, what's going to happen to him. And he knew very well what would happen to him. And so that connects with this uh, question that we want to tackle this morning about uh, why does evil exist. And so this is the third of the three weeks we had kind of between our fourfold series and then Easter. And then we're going to jump back into the book of Acts after that. Uh, and so um, we've covered the trustworthiness of the Bible. And then we've covered uh, God and sexuality last week. So if you didn't catch either one of those, we invite you to just go find those on our, I think our YouTube channel is probably the easiest way. Uh, but the most asked question, most of us have asked it, I have definitely asked it throughout my life, um, is this question of why is there evil and why is there suffering? They're kind of together as one uh, idea. Um, and so it's not just us that ask this question, but a lot of people ask this question. There was a survey in 2009, and the question was asked, if you could ask God only one question and you knew he would give you an answer, what would you ask? And the number one response was, why is there pain and suffering in the world? So this is a very common question. Uh, and and it's, um, it's one that a lot of people have been asking throughout human history, right? It's a question that's been through the ages. We've all wondered this. Some of the best literature we have in our world is dealing with this kind of question. Uh, and maybe you haven't articulated it, or maybe it has, just hasn't been lately, but you felt it in your gut. Why? why? I, I don't, it doesn't make sense to me. Uh, there's, I mean, how many things have happened in the recent weeks in the news that we could ask the question, why? Why does this happen? Uh, maybe you've lost someone, maybe you've gotten a diagnosis, maybe you've seen a tragic story, and you have this feeling in your gut that it's not right. Right? It's not just like, oh, that's sad, but we have this feeling that says there is 
injustice and evil. It's not right. And that feeling that something about evil or suffering that you've experienced is an expression of this question, why is there evil? And then when we add the secularism of our day to that human problem, you end up with a question of why is there suffering if there is a good God uh, and if God is good, how can, how can there be evil and suffering, right? That's what people ask. And so with all the other questions we've looked at, uh, and, and with any question like this, there's sort of the high-level philosophy side of answering the question, and then there's sort of the street-level real-life experience answer to the question. And so let me deal with the philosophy side first, and then we'll get to the more personal reflection. And let me just give you a piece of advice. If someone comes to you, uh, and says, hey, I'm dealing with this suffering, don't go philosophy first. right? Go feeling with them first. That's what God has done to us. And so that's just, uh, just a little um, experiential piece of advice. I learned the hard way that when people are suffering, they don't need to hear philosophical answers. They just need you to be there with them. But for us today, suffering is a, is a really key question. Uh, this is from a book called Faith and Reason by Ronald Nash. He says this, Every philosopher believes that the most serious challenge to theism, that's the belief in any god, uh, was and is and will continue to be the problem of evil. That evil is a problem for those of us who believe in God, philosophically, right? And this is the single challenge that causes me, personally, me, in my innermost spirit, probably 95% of the doubts that I have about God. And yes, I have them from time to time. When I think about people who have suffered in ways that don't make sense to me, like they didn't do anything to make that happen, it just—it was just tragedy. Um, I, I wonder how can God be good, right? Particularly for my family, I think about the kids that I've known from the foster care system and the kids that I've heard about. I wonder why, why God, why has this happened? What, why are there orphans in our world? How in the world can you be good in the middle of that, God? Um, there's another philosopher named David Bentley who said this, One might well conclude that the world contains far too much misery for the pious idea of a good, loving, and just God to be taken seriously, and that any alleged creator of the universe in which children suffer and die hardly deserves our devotion. And he goes on to say that the problem of evil is this, and it's an intelligible one with a certain sublime moral purity to it, and it is deeply compelling. So he's saying that the problem of evil is a compelling problem. And it's not an isolated one, right? It isn't that there's one particular place in the world where this issue exists, but not anywhere else. Even in our very safe, relative to other places in the world community, uh, we still experience ourselves and also see others around us experience suffering at the hands of evil. Uh, and, and so, um, I mean, just the other day, I was headed to baseball practice at 2 o'clock in the afternoon on a Thursday over at Lansdowne High School and got word that there was a shooting across the street from the school, and the school was on lockdown. And I'm asking, like, why does this stuff happen, God? Why? Now, thankfully, in that instance, I, I don't think anybody was hurt, but still, this is a universally true problem, and, and we've said that philosophers have been asking this question for a long time. Some of you didn't even realize that you were philosophers. You're asking this question uh, all the time in your life. Like, why, why is this happening? Uh, one of the most popular sort of um, distillations, like summaries of this challenge, comes from an 18th century philosopher um, named David Hume. You may have heard of uh, that name. 
Um, you, you've probably heard a version of this question. It goes like this. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able to? Then he is not powerful. Is he able to but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then why is there evil? That, that's his question. So first, let's, let's break down this, this objection a little bit. Let's break down this quote because as Christians... As gospel-believing people, as people who are under the kingship of Jesus and believe in his kingdom, we need to be able to think critically about things that are assumed as true uh, by our day and age and bring them under the light of the gospel and the kingdom of heaven like Jesus did. And so this quote is essentially asking us to decide if there's a connection between the existence of evil and the, non, the supposed non-existence of God. The, the suggestion of this idea in this quote is that the existence of evil somehow disproves the existence of God. And again, at face value, this can kind of feel like an unanswerable question. Maybe some of you have run into this when you've talked to someone about Jesus. Yeah, but why is there evil? And you feel like, uh, I don't know how to answer that. So at face value, it seems like an unanswerable question. So what does the premise in this quote assume? What does the underlying idea assume? First, it assumes that evil is a real thing, and we would absolutely agree with that, that evil is real in our world. And again, it, it assumes that if God exists, he is good. Again, we agree with that as well. We agree with those two ideas. There's evil in the world, and God exists, and he is good. But one step beyond this, the premise in this quote would argue that those two things are mutually exclusive, that they can't both exist at the same time. It argues that a good God and real evil cannot both exist at the same time, and this is where we would disagree. So how do we as Christians deal with this problem? Because that is what this question wants from us. If you've ever encountered this question, that's what it wants. It's putting the burden of proof on us and saying, well, if there is a God, how do you explain evil? And, and that seems, that feels like a pretty ironclad argument to us. Like, ooh, I don't know how to answer that. It can feel like we have no answer, but we do have an answer. It may not be an answer that a skeptical heart would like to hear in the moment, but it is an answer that we can invite someone to consider. The first thing to, to all admit is that the problem of evil, uh, although very compelling, is not, as uh, David Hart would say, a strictly logical question. It's not strictly just a logical question that we bring up. Um, we, we, to negate the existence of God because evil exists is a problem, a legitimate problem that gets brought up, but it's not just um, it, that it isn't just a mind issue. There are other things in the world that are true and are not strictly logical, right? Like what? Like love. Like love isn't always strictly intellectually logical. Most of the time it's not at all. Most of the time we do, right, crazy things for love. Anyone who has loved someone deeply knows that love is not less than logical, but it is far more than that. And so one of the realities we have to come to terms with when it comes to how we deal with this is that it's not just a Christianity problem. This isn't just an issue for those of us who claim Christianity. Every religion and every non-religious worldview has to do something with this question. We're not the only ones who have to deal with this. No one has the luxury of just not dealing with it because... We all live in the same world in which evil exists. So the question of evil isn't just one that we Christians have to answer. What we want to do as Christians, though, is to gently and, and honorably 
help people see that they also need to deal with the problem of evil, that the skeptic themselves has to also deal with the problem of evil. And then what we can do is also gently share with them why we believe that the Christian answer is the most compelling answer among the other answers in the worldviews. And again, not all of our argumentation needs to be strictly logical. Right? I'm not telling you to have debates with people. So let's just take two common sort of buckets of worldviews and break down how they try to deal uh, with this issue. Uh, now, I know that when you talk about worldviews, there's two things that are true at the same time. There are, is, again, the worldview that exists in the realm of ideas where everything is black and white and clean and nice, right, uh, in philosophy. And then, again, there's street-level worldviews that exist in sort of the, the mud of the mixed ideas of childhood and stuff we read in social media posts, and right? So maybe you've got some uh, ideas from your childhood religious experience mixed in there uh, with, with your new thinking that you got from watching movies or whatever. That's why it's difficult for these discussions to happen in this kind of setting. And so what we're going to do is we're going to stick to as best we can sort of the realm of neat and clean ideas out in the ether where they exist in philosophy. And then we'll do the work of figuring out how our street level ideas fit in there. Uh, and so all I want to do today is maybe help you to realize that some of what you actually believe has a name in the world of philosophy. And that will help you think more critically about it. So... The first one of the non-Christian worldviews that I just want to give you an overview on in terms of this problem of evil is what is generally called New Age philosophy, right? And this is, exists in our world. So this worldview has um, roots in uh, religions like pantheism, the idea that everything is God and God is everything. Uh, the entire goal here is to reach higher and higher levels of enlightenment or illumination, and the ultimate goal is to sort of reach a kind of a Zen enlightened plane of existence. Uh, maybe the most, you know, outright uh, piece of cultural artifact that we have right now is the is the um, the movies with the blue people. It just left my mind. Avatar. Avatar. Yeah, right. That that's that's this sort of pantheism. Did somebody say Smurfs? <laughs> You're right, though. You're right. And I appreciate that you spoke to my generation. I like that. Uh, so, New Age philosophy teaches us that all of us have the divine essence in us. You might hear language of the spark of the divine. Uh, and if you hear that, especially in a Christian circle, your ears should perk up because that's New Age philosophy. Uh, and, and so, the divine is sort of this faceless consciousness, kind of like the force in Star Wars. Uh, and so the way that New Age philosophy deals with evil is that it says that evil itself actually does not exist. So any negative event or moral evil is simply an illusion or in, deep into this philosophy they would call it a maya. So what might happen in the life of, of a person who is a New Age thinker is that they won't speak about evil or suffering that's happening because if they acknowledge it, then it somehow manifests this reality in their life. You might have, a lot of people are talking about manifesting things right now in sort of the cultural zeitgeist, right? I'm going to manifest a new piece of real estate, and I'm just going to think about it, and it's going to happen. That's connected to this type of thinking. And let me just be clear, this is a totally unchristian way to think, particularly about the problem of evil and suffering. But this, this gets its way into our modern Christianity. Every generation of Christianity has to be careful of what we call syncretism, where we sync together our Christian doctrines with the, 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 the ideas of the age. And, and that's always an issue we have to watch out for. So I would put the health and wealth, claim, name it and claim it type of Christianity 
perversion of Christianity into the category of being synced with this sort of philosophy. If you hear someone who claims to be a Christian teacher talking about how their words have the power to create reality in the universe, or any sort of version of that, run from that teacher. That is unchristian. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. Second thing is atheism. In my experience, the argument that's leveled against Christians uh, more often than any other, I've actually had some discussions about this on the ball field pretty recently, and the one that got the most questions uh, in, in uh, the, the Barna survey we talked about was the atheist form of this problem of evil. The atheist position is that the existence of evil is proof of the non-existence of God. Okay? So this has been known as sort of the rock of atheism, uh, like the, the, the philosophical checkmate to Christianity. Yeah, you can say whatever you want. Church is doing nice things. People's lives are transformed. But problem of evil, checkmate. Like that's how it kind of goes. Anytime something bad happens in the world, uh, think of whatever piece of news you want to think of in the last couple weeks or last couple months or however long, the atheist position is to say, see, how can there be a loving, all-powerful God if these evil things keep happening? But let's think critically about a couple things. And if, you're, if you weren't paying attention up till now, um, we're going to now get heady. Okay? So just be awake. So it's not adequate to say God cannot exist if there is evil. This is an argument that's built on assumptions that many people who are skeptical might not realize. And honestly, it's, it's kind of on us as Christians to care enough about them to lovingly point out these assumptions that people have. One of, if, the, not greatest, if not the greatest uh, living philosophers who also happens to be a Christian is named Alvin Plantinga. Uh, he says that there are five basic ideas that Christians hold to as it relates to God and evil. Here are five basic ideas. Number one, God exists. Number two, God is all-powerful. Number three, God knows everything that can be known. Number four, God is completely good in every way, like we sung. And number five, evil exists. Those are five things that we believe as a Christian. Now, an atheist might argue that all of these can't be true at the same time. But the burden of proof, we would gently say, is on them to give evidence as to why, five can, why all five cannot be true. It's not enough to just say that they can't be true like that's some kind of intellectual checkmate, to just say, well, it's not true, right? Uh, Planning asserts that they have to provide some proofs for these assertions, and he says that certainly none of them, none of their assertions have succeeded. It's in a book called God and Other Minds. Here's a, a few attempts to provide proofs. proofs. Um, J.L. Mackey says this in his book, Evil and Omnipotence. A good thing, i.e. God, always eliminates evil as far as it can, and that there are no limits to what an omnipotent thing can do. So what is he saying? He's saying that if God really is all good and all powerful, then he would eliminate evil as far as he can. But why should we just take him at his word? Why is this necessarily true? Why should we assume that every case of evil we know of can't possibly have some greater good that would also be eliminated if God eliminated all evil? So what if stopping an evil terrorist mastermind from being born today would also stop the birth of the person 100 years from now who would cure an uncurable disease and save far more lives than the lives that, that terrorist would have taken? What, what, why should we assume the other way? There's also the question of God violating human free will and human responsibility. 
So this assumption is not holding up under the weight of pretty simple philosophical arguments. Now, the more important idea for you as a Christian on the sort of street level of talking to people is to, under, to understand is, is that actually suffering takes us in the exact opposite direction. So let's break this down. The atheist skeptical uh, person has an assumption built into their argument about evil and God uh, that can't exist at the same time, right? So built into their worldview is this assumption that evil and God can't both exist in the same time. That assumption that they have, again, that can't exist with God is the category of evil. And I would guess that almost every person that I met would argue with that, that, that would argue this way, um, as an example, that to abuse children is what? Wrong, right? Just, it's just inherently wrong. So see, for the person who does not want to believe in God's, God's existence because of evil, the fact that they have a category in their mind for evil, or even suffering actually presents them with a really big philosophical problems. Where did your category of evil or suffering come from? Where did you get the idea that something is evil or wrong? Who told you that human beings are important and that you can't just steal from them, kill them if you want to, or, or any other manner of evil things? If you and I are having a discussion about this and you want to try to convince me that there's no such thing as a category of evil, what could I do? Steal your phone out of your hand, and we'll see how, if you don't think that's wrong. Right? We have this assumption that there's evil, that there's wrong, that there's injustice. Is that an act of evil for me to do that? To steal from you if there's no category of evil? Who are you to say then? C.S. Lewis sums this whole thing up uh, in, um, in this way in mere Christianity. When I was an atheist... Right? This is C.S. Lewis talking. When I was an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I gotten this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe, universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have just given up my idea of justice by saying that it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not just simply that it did not happen to please my fancies. So how did I get a category for just and unjust if there's no God? So, so let's take this and make it a little more personal. How, how many of you have ever had a tragedy hit you? Or again, you hear about some tragic event that has happened and you just have this gnawing feeling in your gut. Not that this is just not pleasing to you, but that it's wrong. That this feels wrong in my gut. What is that? As Christians, we would just lovingly point people uh, that this is what Ecclesiastes 3 means when it says that God has put eternity in our hearts. That we have the fingerprints of God's uh, sort of spiritual DNA in us, even as we run from Him. We were created by God for a world without evil, and so there is a soul-level knowledge that is sort of burned into us that evil is not the way that things should be. We know this. And so we would argue that the fact that all humans throughout history have had categories for good and evil, and we will agree that in those categories there is some variance from culture to culture for what good and evil is, but every culture has those categories... We have always had categories for good and evil, and that fact points to the existence 
of a God. We would argue that if there is no God, there can be no such category of good or evil. It's just what I prefer and what someone else doesn't prefer, or vice versa. And so the last part of these assumptions uh, on the part of many skeptics um, is uh, the idea that if God exists, he would not allow for what some people deem as pointless evil. Again, we see this on sort of the personal interactions uh, with people when we say things that there's like senseless crime, right? How many times have we heard that living here? Well, that shooting was senseless. That carjacking was senseless. The problem with this idea is that there's no possible way to track and research every incident of evil in the world and see if any possible good came out of it. In fact, what many of you know from experience in life is that the opposite is actually true. In your own personal life, it is likely that there has been some event that was evil or that you lost or that caused suffering that good came out of. That is very likely true. From a Christian worldview, we believe this is absolutely true. Friday night is the culmination of that. There, there are, there's this sense that I, I notice in myself when I'm around other people that there are certain Christians, that I've said this a number of times, some of you in this room are these people. There are certain Christians, when you're around them, you can just tell that they have come through some kind of suffering and that they're walking with God on the other side of it. And there are things that they have that they only got in the fire of suffering that are good things. There are things that some people have in their character and who they are, this, this patient softness that seems like it can only be earned in sort of the crucible of pain and suffering. This is true in my own life as well. Um, in, in any of us, this is true. Hebrews 2.10 says this, it was fitting that he, this is about Jesus himself being taught through suffering, it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So Jesus somehow was made perfect through suffering, Hebrews 2 says. So here's kind of the key understanding on this. Your inability to see the possible good that can come from evil is not the same as there not being any good. Your inability to see the good is not the same as there not being good. That's mistaken thinking that's going to lead you down a dark and bitter road. So why is it so hard for our modern minds to see that there could possibly be a good that comes out of evil? The reason we struggle to see how evil can bring good, and listen, I'm not saying you're going to see this in the middle of horrible suffering. So don't think I'm suffering right now and I need to see the good and why is my faith weak? No, that's not what we're doing here. But the reason we struggle to see how evil can possibly bring good is that we're continually taught by our culture that the goal and purpose of life is personal happiness and self-actualization. That's what we're taught. And if happiness is all there is, then the only way to deal with evil which exists is to put it in the category of meaninglessness. And as we saw in our conversation last week about sexuality, we need meaning as humans. We have to have it. If happiness is the lens by which you see the meaning of life, then suffering can't have a place. Because suffering and happiness can't go together. But what if, what if there's a good that transcends the emotional experience of happiness as defined by our day and age? What if there's a good that transcends that, that suffering is actually able to help you move towards? This is what 
Christians historically have called joy. We have separated happiness and joy in our definitions. And here's a definition for joy. Satisfaction with and in the empowering presence of God himself. So joy, which differs from happiness, can't just be taken from you at a moment's notice. I wonder if you've been around a person who is in the midst of some kind of suffering and yet joyful because they're walking in the presence of Jesus. It's not rooted in circumstances, but instead joy is rooted in the person and the presence of Jesus. And so suffering can actually somehow now have the meaning of being part of how I move towards the empowering presence of Jesus and his spirit. So uh, the response of Christianity to suffering. This is where Christianity is, uh, in my opinion and in the opinion of the church throughout history. This is why we think our worldview is so compelling, our response to suffering. Christianity says not only does God care about your suffering, uh, in Psalm 34, 18, it says that he is near to the brokenhearted. And I, and I love the message version here. He says, if your heart is broken, you'll find God right there. If you're kicked in the gut, he'll help you catch your breath. That's a Christian response to suffering. So not only does God care about your suffering, and not only can he take and use your suffering to bring about a greater good. Romans 8 is the classic text on this. And we know that for those who've got, who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. It doesn't say all things work together for happiness. It says all things work together for your good. And so not only does God draw near to the brokenhearted, not only is he able to redeem your suffering for good, but his ultimate response to the suffering of humanity is seen in Jesus as he sets his face towards Jerusalem, rides in on Palm Sunday, and is the archetype for how God means for us to deal with suffering. If Jesus, In Jesus Christ, God comes and experiences suffering with you. But why? Why would Jesus, God in the flesh, why would he do this? What could be the motivation for God to become his creation and make his home in the world of nonsensical evil and suffering? Right? Jesus' own death was nonsensical. He was innocent, and he was put to death by a corrupt state. That doesn't make any sense. A little later on in the book of Hebrews, we read that Jesus endured the suffering of the cross for the joy that was set before him. So as we think about Palm Sunday, Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem sometime before that. He rides into Jerusalem. He knows what's coming for him. He knows he's going to be betrayed by his closest comrades. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. He's going to be buried. And he's going to be raised to life. But all of that he did for the joy that was set before him. He entered willingly into suffering that he did not create. Into our suffering with us and for us. Because it was something far beyond just earthly happiness. Something that transcends even the darkest evil. And that was the joy set before him. Again, remember our definition satisfaction in the empowering presence of God. In that very text in Hebrews, it says that Jesus endured the suffering of the cross for the joy that was set before him and that he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father in God's presence. So there it is. Jesus knew that he would move closer to being in the empowering presence of God if he was willing to walk through this suffering that was before him. It wasn't that he was happy about it. It wasn't that he desired it. On Friday night, we'll look at his time in the Garden of Gethsemane and what he said. Take this cup from me if you can. He didn't want this. But in the end, 
He released himself. He gave, he turned himself over to God. He trusted in God and knew that there was something on the other side of the suffering, that there was joy in the presence of God to be had. And so Christianity, we would argue, actually allows you the spiritual and the mental room necessary to live in the tension of the reality that evil is not logical. Right? The reason things feel wrong is because they don't make sense in God's intended creation. It doesn't make sense. So to try and make sense of it will always leave some mystery. I don't understand why the evil that's in our world is the way it is, but to the skeptic, I would say neither do you. You don't understand why the evil in the world exists in the world in the way that it does. And so you don't understand it either, and neither does that disprove the existence of the God who I believe in and who would enter into my human experience with me of evil. So Christianity, on this Holy Week, we're not claiming to come along and give every answer to every question. That's not what Christianity claims. That's not the point. Christianity doesn't offer answers to every question. It offers, though, the presence of the living God in the person and the work of Jesus who says to us, I am near to you, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, I will walk with you in the middle of your suffering and give you victory in spite of it. And so the offer of Christianity is not that God will answer every question about your suffering, but that he'll walk with you and be in every moment of your suffering with you, empowering you and walking with you. That's the offer of Christianity. That's how we, as we look at Palm Sunday, as we look at Holy Week, as we look at Good Friday, as we look at Easter Sunday, that's how we deal with the problem of evil and suffering in our world. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for this reality. And Holy Spirit, thank you for the reality that you have filled us and empower us with this same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And so would you make us a people who are willing to step into and walk along with people who are dealing with suffering and evil in their world? Would you make us a people who are willing to speak truthfully about evil that we do see and to say, yes, this is evil and this does exist? But then would you also make us a people who, like Jesus, like you, were willing to, in compassion, step into that evil and suffering and potentially give ourselves over for the sake of others. We, we hand ourselves over to you, God. We give ourselves over to you. We turn ourselves over to you. We confess that we try to fix problems in our world too often on our own. And Father, we want to walk, especially in this week, as we think about what Jesus has done for us, we want to walk in the type of submission that says, I see evil and suffering. I know it for what it is. And my response to it will be to walk with those who are suffering because of it. And we pray this in your name. Amen.